Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Habakkuk chapter three. We're just gonna look at the very end of this book, the very end of this little section. It's, it's one of the more famous parts of the book um, and a very, very powerful section. Habakkuk three, verse 17 through 19. If you'll follow along, I'm gonna read the words of, these, of the prophet. But they're, of course, they come to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's hear together the word of the Lord. Habakkuk 3, beginning in 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the older I get, the more I think I realize that life is really just a series of events that we make sense of. I mean, that's what your life is. <laughs> it's a series of events that, that you then kind of make sense of. And the way that you make sense of those events, <laughs> how you respond to those events, that's really who you are. Your life is a series of events. How you respond to those events, that's who you are. People can go through the exact same event, the exact same event. And one person, it's a tragedy, it can ruin them. Another person, same event. And it can be the very thing that changes their lives. The very thing that gives them a sense of identity and meaning and purpose. And this is one of the reasons that Bible study is so important. One of the reasons what we're doing right now is so helpful and so important. The Bible obviously gives us this paradigm to help us make sense of life, to help us make sense of these events. And I love that it's in narrative form. We see how others in their relationship with God are making sense of the events of life. How do we respond when really good things happen? How do we respond when really bad things happen? How do we respond? How do we understand the character of God when really good things happen? How do we respond when really bad things happen? Understand the character of God when bad things happen. And Habakkuk is one of those places in Scripture, I've really loved this study, and I hope you have. It's one of those places in Scripture that makes you think about life. It makes you think about really all of life, the highs of life and the lows of life. I mean, you see, things have been good for Israel. God had blessed his people. I mean, he called them to be his covenant people, and he'd led them out of the land of Egypt. He'd led them out of the land of captivity and slavery. And, and, and in that moment, it felt like they could not lose. I mean, God was showing his power and his strength before the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And he was going before his people. And there was all these miracles and these signs, and just these evidences that God was with the Hebrew people. And of course, that, that continued as God led them into the promised land. I mean, if you've read the book of Joshua, you, you've seen this, that God just goes before his people and these enemies are defeated and God gives them this abundant and good promised land. 
You know, I was thinking this week about Joshua 24. God has given his people the land. They are riding high. The blessing of God is abundant. And God says in Joshua 24, verse 13 and 14, very interesting passage, especially in light of the passage that we're looking at today. God says, I gave you land on which you had not labored. So this is kind of tilled land for them. Cities that you did not build and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vines and olive orchards that you did not plant. (laughs) So God is saying to them, not only am I giving you land, I'm not just giving you empty land, I'm giving you developed land cultivated land, land that is producing, land with cities that have walls and buildings. These are yours to enjoy. And what does he say? He says, in light of this then, verse 14, he says, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods. Don't go after the other gods. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. In light of this abundant blessing that you are going to have, don't become distracted by the other gods. Don't become calloused in this. Don't become ungrateful for this. Don't become self-reliant. Serve the Lord. Be dependent on the Lord. Worship the Lord. Be holy. Be obedient. And the people did the opposite. Life is a series of events. And how you respond to those events, it tells you everything you are. And sometimes really good things happen to you. How do you respond? How do you respond when you're high? How do you respond when everything is going your way? Do you go cold to the things of the Lord? Do you become more self-reliant? More puffed up? More assured? More proud? Or do you become more humble? More grateful? More dependent on the Lord? Israel, as it were, had failed the test. Rather than God's blessing making them more like God, more holy, more pure, it made them hard. They went after the gods of the nations around them. They started thinking about their reputation, what they looked like on the world stage. They sought after the power of these other gods and they lost their way. They lost their sense of holiness and godliness. They didn't listen to the prophets. And of course, the world crept in, injustice crept in, violence crept in. The people were not a holy and set apart people. And so the book of Habakkuk begins in this moment with Habakkuk saying, God, don't you care? These are your people. These are your covenant people that I know you love and they're violent and they're unjust and they're corrupt. They're just like the world. Aren't you going to do something? And if you've been with us these past few weeks, God says, well, yes, I'm gonna do something. And I'm going to do something because I love my covenant people. But it's going to be so hard. And it's going to be so severe. And it's going to be so intense. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians and they are going to bring judgment upon my people. They're going to bring pain among my people. It's so intense that they will not be able to hold on to their pride. They will not be able to hold on to their self-reliance. I am going to humble my people, is really what God is saying, because I love them. Now, as as I said last week, if you don't have the right imaginary of what a relationship with God is like, of who God is, the book of Habakkuk will do a number on you. 
if this doesn't reframe how we understand what does it really mean to be in covenant relationship with God? And so what we see in today's passage is, is how Habakkuk responds. How is Habakkuk going to respond to this really bad news? It's going to be hard for him. It's gonna be hard for everyone around him. How is he going to respond? Life is a series of events. And how you respond to those events, that's what life is. But how you respond to those events, that's who you are. How do you respond when things are good? How do you respond when things are very difficult? Does your heart turn toward worship? Does it make you grateful or does it make you bitter and angry and short with people? Life is a series of events. How you respond to those things defines who you are. And of course, today's passage is the end of Habakkuk's response. If you were with us last week, the way that Habakkuk begins to respond, it's an amazing thing. He begins to sing this shigianoth, this tune. And the tune, the words of the tune are all about how God, amidst this great pain, amidst this great struggle, amidst this horrible thing that's about to happen to him, he, he reminds himself that God is faithful to his covenant people that God loves his people, that God is sovereign over nature and cultures and that God loves his people. And even though he is in the midst of this storm, this great pain, he, he basically concludes, I am going to praise my Lord. I am going to love my Lord. And we, we see the culmination of that today in this final stanza. Two things that we see here in verse 17 to 19 that I think we've got to understand. I mean, these are, these are so essential if you're ever gonna make it through this life intact. Number one is we need to learn about the pain of life. And then number two, we need to learn about the promise of God. Verse 17, let's look at it together. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruits be on the vines, though the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Now, 21st century American people, <laughs> we may not understand these analogies. You may be like, well, you know, I don't have any herd in my stalls. I'm fine. This is talking about utter ruin, utter devastation, Though all of your property be taken away from you, though you lose your job, though inflation skyrocket like never before, the markets tank like we've never seen before. This is talking about utter financial ruin. This is what Habakkuk is describing here. Though, though everything be taken away from me, everything that God blessed us with taken away. And, and and in this financial ruin, we're totally unable to defend ourselves. Our, our, our cities fail, our defenses fail. We can't even feed ourselves. We become totally dependent on our enemies. That's what Habakkuk is talking about here. You know, it's interesting. Remember Joshua? In the passage I just read in Joshua, Josh says, I'm giving you vineyards that you did not plant. I'm giving you these olive orchards that you did not plant. What do we see here? Now, now there's no fruit on the vineyard. There's, there's no produce. God, God, in a sense, is saying, I'm taking back what you gave me. Your heart became hard against me. You became self-consumed. You became proud. And now your vineyards will be empties. Your, your cities will fail. You are coming to economic 
ruin. And I want to spend a little time here talking about the reality of pain. Remember, life is a series of events. And the way that you deal with those events is really who you are. You know, if we're not careful, we can kind of Americanize our life or create this American narrative about our lives. Rather than life is a series of events, just life is a series of achievements. Life is moving from success to success to success, to comfort to comfort to comfort. And one generation will be more blessed than the next generation and et cetera, et cetera. We can imagine our lives that way. But here at Habakkuk, I mean, his generation is not going to be comfortable. His generation is not going to be successful. His, his generation is not going to have the wealth and protection that previous generations have. Does that mean that God did not love them? I mean, that's a great question to ask here. Does that mean that Habakkuk has no faith? Does that mean that they did something wrong? Now, now clearly in this text, this hardship that Israel was going to endure was brought about by their own sin. But what's interesting is most of the sin had come from previous generations. It was the sin of people before them. It certainly wasn't Habakkuk's sin, and yet he was going to endure the same pain as everyone else. We know from the Bible that all pain and suffering and brokenness comes from sin in general, right? The fallen world, right? The world is out of order. God is restoring this world. The, the, the biblical language says the world is groaning, right? Desiring to be restored. So yes, all, all brokenness comes from sin in general, but we also know from scripture that pain does, is not necessarily the result of sin in particular. This is very important to remember. I think where people get in trouble with hardship, and, and if I can give you one thing today, I hope you get this, is they, they, where they get in trouble with pain is they start doing the math on pain. Remember the old um, musical, Sound of Music? Uh, and there's a, there's a moment when Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer are singing to one another. They're falling in love and they say, they're so happy, you know. And Maria, Julie Andrews says, you know, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good, you know. I must have done something good. Because if good things happen to me, then I did good. And if bad things are happening to me, then I did bad. And this is where people get in trouble with pain. We started doing the math. Okay, if something bad happens, well then what was the bad thing that I did to result on this? Or I'm doing all this good, then why am I not abundantly blessed? I, I put in my side of the math equation, where's God on his side of the math equation? This is how many people imagine God. Remember we were studying John 9? The disciples had the same mindset. They go to Jesus, they see the blind man and they say, who sinned? He's blind, who sinned? This man or his parents. Remember this scene? He was born blind. Somebody must have sinned here. His, him or his parents. And Jesus blows up that wrong preconception, that wrong imaginary of who God is. And Jesus says, it's, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but he is blind that the work of God might be displayed in him. Is that how you understand the Lord? Is that how you understand your life? Is God just your genie? 
that if you serve right, he'll serve you. You pray just the right way, he'll bless you. Is life just about you being comfortable and having your narrative? Is that who God is to you? Or do you see your life more like this? No, actually, my whole life, whether I'm blessed or whether I'm in pain, it's that the work of God might be displayed in my life. That is the purpose of who I am. There's a stream of evangelical theology called the prosperity gospel, and it can manifest itself in, in a number of different ways. The extreme prosperity gospel is this kind of name it and claim it. I mean, you've heard about this. Like if you believe, if you want something and you name it, God, give me this, and you have enough faith, and you have enough faith, right? There's a math problem there. There's a math equation. It's always, it's always like, well, you must not have enough faith. You must not have prayed hard enough. You must not have done enough to get what is rightfully yours because you're claimed it. If you, if you have enough faith, you obey enough, the math works out right and you will be healthy and wealthy and you'll have your best life now. I like what Al Mohler says about this kind of prosperity preaching. He says, never trust a prosperity preacher who's less than 200 years old. <laughs> and, the, and the problem with prosperity preaching, it's, it's not that they want too much from life as they want too little. They understand their life is only now. They don't understand the promises of God. They don't understand what God is doing ultimately. But there's another kind of prosperity preaching, and it's more common, it's more widespread in evangelical churches, but it's much more subtle. And it basically presents God in this kind of, look, if you do well, if you follow these principles, everything will go well for you. You'll be protected. Satan won't be able to get to you. Don't step out of line, right? Jesus can help you make better decisions. Jesus can help you have a better life. But it's, it's all about your narrative here. And Christianity in that setting is reduced from the worship of a living God to a self-help manual. And if you've lived in that way, either extreme, if you're on the more subtle extreme of that, or if you're on all in, you know, name it and claim it. I'm just going to tell you, let me just go ahead and break it to you guys. You're setting yourself up for a very disillusioned life. A couple weeks ago, Billy talked about deconstruction and how he has some friends that are deconstructing their faith. The people that I know that are experiencing that right now, all of them, to a person, have come out of this kind of imaginary of who God is. This kind of math equation genie God. If I just do this, this, and this, then God will have to do this, this, and this. Jesus, Jesus in John 9 says, you're, you're totally missing the point. It, this man is not blind because of his sin. He is not blind because of his parents' sin. He's blind so that the power of God might be displayed in him. This is why I love scripture. We've got to listen to it. Listen to it. Don't, don't, don't forecast kind of our own little American perceptions on it. We've got to listen to it. I've been reading this book, Biblical Critical Theory, by Christopher Walken. It's a very helpful book, and he talks about a lot of the tensions that exist in Scripture. And, and one of the things that I love, he talks about the tension that exists in the writings of Scripture, um, books like Proverbs, books like Ecclesiastes. And he says there, there's, it's so balanced if you think about the Bible. If you read the book of Proverbs... The book of Proverbs is very regular, right? And that's the way life does work sometimes, right? Because, so I'm not saying that there's not wisdom in biblical principles. 
I'm not saying that things don't go well if we follow biblical principles. Usually they do. But the the purpose is not so that they will go well. The purpose is so that God will be glorified, whether they go well or not well. And so the book of Proverbs is very regular like that, right? The book of Proverbs basically says life kind of makes sense, right? Be wise, be righteous, and things will go well with you. But then also in the same Bible, in the same section of the Bible, you have the book of Ecclesiastes. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? And the book of Ecclesiastes basically says life makes no sense. <laughs> life is chaos. Life never goes how you thought it was going to, to go. But then you also have the book of Job. And, and the book of Job kind of is both, right? The book of Job, I mean, he, he was blessed because of his righteousness, But then this great pain, I mean, the bulk of the book is about pain, but if you just think of the whole life of Job, it's kind of both. He was blessed because of his righteousness, but this pain came upon him that he didn't understand. I I love this. This is the way the Bible is because this is actually the way life is like. Let's listen to scripture. G.K. Chesterton says it this way. He says, the real trouble with this world of ours is not that it is unreasonable, (laughs) nor is it reasonable. It's nearly reasonable, but not quite. You can't do the math on this. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want you to hear me saying that suffering or pain is itself good, right? I'm not saying it is good. I'm not saying it's intrinsically good. I am saying it can be for good. St. Augustine said it this way, suffering can be made instrumentally good but it is not intrinsically good. That's a good word. So, man, if God's taught you something in suffering, the lesson is not go look for all the pain you can get so you can learn more. Suffering is not intrinsically good. It can be instrumentally good. It can be be made for good. We're not masochists, right? We're not trying to bring as much suffering on ourselves as possible. But what we can realize, if we really continue to look to God, is that through suffering, God can work out good things in our lives and in good things in others and bring glory to himself. Suffering itself is hard. It is hard. And it itself is not a good, but it can be used for good. God, God has this way of taking even the worst things, things that we don't understand, and working them out for good. You know, I was thinking this week about the, the juxtaposition between Acts 4 and Acts 7. Acts 4, Peter and John, they go into Solomon's portico. They preach boldly the word of Christ. They, they preach this amazing message. They call everybody out. And it says in Acts 4 that everybody was mad and everybody wanted to do away with them, but they didn't die. They weren't killed. They were saved. God took care of them. God protected them. So then you come to Acts 7 and Stephen starts preaching and you're like, oh, I know how this goes. He's being bold. He's being faithful. God's going to protect him too. And then he gets stoned to death. Now, if you don't have the right imaginary of who God is, your faith will, uh, you'll deconstruct your faith just seven chapters into the church, into the book of Acts. But, But it was actually through that that the gospel actually started to spread. The gospel went forward. The gospel went out of Jerusalem and started to go even to the ends of the earth. Listen, you can't can't do the math on this. We often say, man, if if my life's going well, I must have done good. If my life's gone bad, I must have done bad. Don't, Don't let Rogers and Hammerstein define your understanding of the world. Let, Let the Bible define your understanding of the world. 
If, if, this is, if you're trying to do the math on this, you will have a fearful and cynical and disappointed life because the good of life will never be enough and the difficulty of life, you'll always, you'll always feel regret. You'll always feel like you've done something wrong. The only way out, and what you hear this is the second point, the promises of God. Look at Habakkuk 18 and 19 with me. God has said, this horrible thing's happening. You are coming to utter ruin. It's no, no produce, no herds, no flocks. And look at verse 18. Habakkuk says, and I love this, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, God, the Lord. He is my strength and he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. It was a type of deer that Habakkuk would have had in mind here. If you go to the Middle East, there's these little animals, you see them everywhere, called ibex. And they're kind of these like mountain goat deers. And they're so sure-footed. You ever seen, I mean, you've seen like mountain goats or something. You ever seen an animal do this? And they're on these like little thin slices of rock. And you just, just looking at it makes you nervous. But they're just kind of looking at you like, what's up? You know, I mean, they don't care. Have y'all ever seen, have any of y'all seen the uh, documentary about Alex Honnold climbing El Capitan free solo? And he climbs this 3,500 foot granite rock face with no harness, no rope, no nothing. And he's just kind of climbing away. But this is, this is what Habakkuk's thinking. <laughs> he's thinking, look, look, as long as I hope in the Lord, I can, I can be on a thin slice of a rock, <laughs> on a mountain, and God is going to keep me safe. God is going to build me up. This hardship, it hurts. It's painful. But that's what God does through difficulty. As you look to God, I want you to hear this. Please hear this. As you look to God, as you hope in God, as you rest in God, in your greatest triumphs and also in your deepest pains, as you keep looking to God, you know what he does? He has this way of building you up of putting you on the mountain, of making you steady and strong. A hard situation, a hard situation, a pain, a trial, it can either build you up and you come away stronger and wiser and more compassionate and more poised. Or if you don't look at God, if you don't trust in the Lord, it will harden you. It will leave you bitter and angry and isolated. And, and this is true of hard situations that are not your fault, things that happen. It was not your fault. It just happened. There's no, there's no correlation to you. It just happened to you. How are you going to do? Are you going to lean into the Lord during that? Or are you going to be angry and bitter and isolated? But here's, here's something I want you to hear. It can also happen in situations that are totally your fault. You messed up. You did something really, really stupid with your home or with your work or whatever it was, and it's embarrassing and it's shameful. I want you to hear this. Some of you may be sitting here right now in that situation. I want you to hear this. Please hear this. If you lean into God, if you repent, if you own that thing, whatever it is, that shameful thing, if you own it, you repent, trust in God's righteousness and not your own, God can actually use that horrible thing to actually make you so much better of a person more whole, more humble, more complete, more wise, more compassionate, more pure. Or 
You'll resist the Lord. You'll resist any correction. And you'll be the victim, right? You'll say, well, this really happened to me because I'm really the victim because if you only understood and you'll blame everybody, you'll point the finger at everybody, you'll become the most isolated person. You'll never be able to recover. I just want you, I see this happen all the time. What Habakkuk teaches us here is what God can do with your life if you respond well in a difficult situation. Your whole life is a series of events. Your whole life is a series of events. How you respond to those events, that's who you are. And what Habakkuk shows us is how to respond when everything goes bad. And what does he say? I will look to you, Lord, and you will make me like the deer on the high mountain. The balanced, poised, high, triumphant deer. How will you respond in pain? How does this, has this shaped your view of God? Will you lean further into him? Will you trust him? Or will you run away and be isolated? You know, I've gotten to see this a lot. I had lunch yesterday with Clay Smith, who's the pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist. And we both, you know, uh, we, we were kind of saying like, we used to think we were young guys in ministry, but I guess now we're old guys in ministry, you know. We're at least middle guys. And we've both been in pastoral ministry about 20 years. And, you know, we were talking about seminary. We were like, there was all this stuff they would tell you in seminary. And you'd be like, no, nah, I don't know if that's true. You know, I think these guys are wrong. And, you know, one of them was this kind of stuff. They'd say, you know, there's some of you guys are going to go through hardship and you're not going to respond well. I mean, they gave, they, they gave me in seminary the sermon that I'm giving you. And... I was like, no, all these, these are like the most godly people ever. All these guys are going to respond well, you know. And now it's 20 years later, and some have responded well. They've gone through hard stuff. They've responded great. Some of them have dropped out. Some of them deconstructed their faith. I mean, these are guys that were in seminary with me. If you, when you go through a hard thing, your fault, not your fault. If you lean into the Lord, he can use that to build you up, to put you on the mountain. Or you will, you will sink deep into the valley. And so pastorally, and this is mostly from observation, but just how do you know the difference? Who are the people that can respond well and who are the people that don't respond well? Three just practical things here. I think the people that respond well to hardship First point are the, the people that have a good theology beforehand. As I mentioned before, kind of a prosperity theology will set you up for great disillusionment. If you have a biblical imaginary of God, if you have a biblical understanding of God, when tragedy strikes, it's not that it's not going to be hard. I mean, it's going to be horrible. I mean, look, look at Habakkuk. We read this last week, verse 16. He's thinking about He's thinking about this, the Chaldeans coming upon him. He's thinking about this utter ruin. He says, my body trembles. My lips quiver. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. So it's not that it's not horrible. I mean, there, this is great lament. He is depressed, if you will, because yet I will quietly wait for the Lord. He, he had a good theology. He understood that it, Life wasn't about his own little narrative. It was about God and him bringing honor to God. People who respond well to hardship, first of all, are people that have a good theology beforehand. Number two, 
It's people whose eyes are open to see God. And I think this one's the biggest one. A lot of times people respond poorly to hardship because they can't see God for themselves, right? They're they're, they're actually blinded by their own pride, by their own aggrandizement. They can't see, oh, actually my life's not about me, it's about God. But when you start looking for God and start seeing him, you'll you'll see him in these wonderful ways. You'll realize even in this hard thing, he sees me, he loves me, he's doing something. I don't know what it is, I don't understand it, but he's doing something, he loves me. That's Habakkuk. Paige's cousin, her son in January, um, was driving home from work, great kid. I mean, the greatest kid, sweet kid. I mean, I love this boy, 19 years old, driving home from work, it's January, hit an ice patch. Wasn't his fault, wasn't speeding, I mean, just driving home from work. Hits an ice patch, flies off the road, hits a tree, dies. 19 years old, 19 years old. I mean, senseless. Her cousin, this guy named Jeremiah, he came down a few weeks ago went to, and was out at Paige's parents' house and he and I just sat down to talk and he pulls out his phone and, and he's keeping a list on his phone. He's got this list of like 50 things that he has seen God do. He's felt the presence of God. Now, they're little things, okay? So, I mean, they're not big things. I mean, it's stuff like a friend called me. I was really down and a friend called me. Any friend could call you anytime, but in that he felt seen by the Lord. I was really down and this song came on and it had a lyric and he would write down the lyric of the song. I love this. Jeremiah is dealing with this so courageously, so triumphantly, this horrible thing. I mean, the worst thing that ever happened to you is losing a child. And he's dealing with this so, with so much poise because he's humble and his eyes are open to see God. And he's seen God everywhere. His faith is rising. He's going higher on the mountain, don't you see? Not lower. It's people who have a good theology beforehand. It's people that, whose eyes are open to see God. And then we're three, and this is very important also, it's people who stay in the rhythms of grace. It's people who stay in the rhythms of grace. When people go through a tragedy, They let the tragedy become an excuse for not reading their Bible. They let the tragedy become an excuse for disengaging with their community. They let the tragedy become an excuse for not going to worship. And look, I wanna say, if you're in the midst of tragedy right now, I get it, I get it. And when you're in the midst of pain, when you are suffering and you go to a worship service and everybody's raising their hands and they're all happy, that feels bad. Or you go to community, group, and they're trying to be good friends, but you're just kind of tired of talking about it. And they're trying to minister to you awkwardly. And maybe you don't feel like reading your Bible because maybe you're a little mad at God right now. I get it. But I just urge you, pastorally, as a friend, stay in the rhythms of grace. And here's what I'll tell you. If you've gone through a tragedy, if you'll stay in God's word, I guarantee you, you will see things in scripture that you could, you could not see before. God will start opening your eyes to things. I mean, you'll, you'll understand the book like Habakkuk way more when you've gone through pain. You'll start seeing things in the Bible that you never saw before. 
If you stay in community, yes, there might be some annoying moments and you might feel like, okay, I gotta talk about this thing again. But listen, you'll meet people that you never knew about. You never knew them. You never knew, they, they, they've gone through the hardest thing and you'll connect with them and you'll be able to minister to one another. And worship, oh, if you'll stay in the rhythm of worship, there'll be a moment, trust me, and Jordan will be up here leading and a lyric will come and that lyric you've sung it a hundred times and it will rest on your heart like it's never rested before. And you'll actually be able to worship the Lord in this full way. Don't, don't give up on these things. Even though it's weird and awkward and hard, stay in the rhythms of grace. Let the Lord push you up. Lean into him. Don't pull away. I want you to hear this. Christians are well-equipped to deal with tragedy. We're well-equipped to deal with tragedy. You know why? You know, a lot of faiths, triumph is the center of the faith. Some sort of ascension to revelation is the center of the faith. Christianity is just the opposite. The center of our very faith is the greatest tragedy that's ever happened. That the Son of God would die. That God the Father, God the Son, unified in perfect harmony for all time, would be separated because of our sin. The cross is the greatest tragedy that has ever happened, and that's at the very, very center of everything we believe. It's not an ascension, it's God descending. As the old catechism says, to endure all of the miseries of this life. Christians are well-equipped for tragedy because our whole faith is centered on a tragedy. And so in this tragedy, I want you to hear this. I know you can't make sense of it, but can't you see that God himself can identify with you? Jesus has endured the greatest tragedy. He was separated from his father. He was outcast from God. He endured all the shame and the pain and the guilt of all of our sin. He endured hell for us. He can identify with you in your deepest tragedy. And if you identify with him, and this is really... This is really when you come to know the Lord. It's not when you meet, you don't, you don't ever meet God when you're at your best. I've often said, Christianity is the only club that you can't get into with a good resume, right? You have to have a bad resume to get in. To, to be a Christian, you have to admit, I'm totally messed up. I have nothing to offer God. If it was left up to me, I would have, I've ruined my whole life. And that's the moment when the saving grace of Jesus grabs you. Christians can deal with tragedy because we, our whole thing is built on tragedy, but it's a tragedy that God in his power and in his grace redeems. Of course, on the third day, Christ was raised. He defeated death. He defeated all of our sin. And he is now even seated high on the throne of heaven. And here's the great news. That is your destiny too. That is your destiny too if you're in Christ, if you look to him, if you look to him in faith. Some of you will go through hard things in this life and within a year, two years, five years, you'll be able to make sense of it. That happens. I hear that all the time. I mean, this thing happened. I wouldn't want to go through it again. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. But now I see what God was doing. I see God actually used that hard thing. Some of you will be like that, and I hope that most of your tragedy is like that. But some of you, there's pain, there's hardship that you'll go through that you will not understand until you see Jesus face to face. But when you do, you look into the face of a Savior who shares your wounds, 
who endured tragedy right with you, who suffered alongside of you, and his victory is all the greater because of what he endured. And here's the deal. Yours will be too. (laughs) Yours will be too. I love the way that Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. Death, pain, hardship, loss. Death, it's all swallowed up in the victory of Christ. You know, in Habakkuk, there was no fruit on the vine. (laughs) There were no olives uh, on the trees. There was no herds in the stables. It's a picture of poverty. It's a picture of starvation. But what is the scene that the Bible gives us on the day when Jesus has, when his victory is fully known, on the day when he has made all things new? What's the picture that God gives us? You know what it is? It's a feast. It's a feast. (laughs) There'll be plenty of olives that day. There'll be plenty of food to eat. We'll be in a city that can never be overtaken, that is totally secure with our Lord, who will never be defeated. And we will eat and drink with him to celebrate this great victory that God has made possible through tragedy and through redemption. Won't you look to Jesus today? Won't you trust him? Won't you quit looking away from some sort of self-reliance and and trust Jesus? Trust that God loves you. He's calling you to himself as you look to his son, Jesus. I can't think of a better way to close than by taking the Lord's Supper together. You know, in this meal, we look two ways. We look back to the cross where Jesus, before the disciples, that one would betray him, all would abandon him, and he knows it. And he says to them, look, I know you're gonna betray me. I know you're gonna abandon me, but this is my body broken, given for you. And then he took the cup to remind them of his rich love for them He said, this cup, in this cup, I'm making a covenant with you. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, you you proclaim my kingdom. The Lord's Supper, it's a look back to the cross, but it's also a look forward to the day when we are with the Lord, celebrating his victory, worshiping him, safe with him, cared for in him. We're gonna do something a little different today. It's not just going to be kind of one song and wrap up. We're actually going to sing a few songs together. And around the room are going to be some of our pastors. I'm going to ask you guys, if you'll just go ahead and stand there. And while we're passing communion and as we continue to worship afterward, it's just going to be a time to respond. If you need prayer today, I'm going to be standing in the back. If, if God is doing something in your life, maybe if there's a pain that you're enduring, maybe there's somebody that you... See, and, and you need to be that person that encourages them. And you need to go to them. And I would invite you, if you're a believer, if you're trusting to Jesus, in Jesus, then I invite you to the table to take this meal, to be reassured of your faith. If you're, if you're not a believer here today, 
you know, the Bible says that this is only a meal for those that come to Jesus in faith. So I just, my invitation to you would be observe. Observe, but, but even as you observe, even as you observe, just, just ask the Lord for faith. Ask, your, ask the Lord to give you a heart to believe. So there's people to pray with you. Deacons are coming to serve these elements. Let's stand and let's respond as the Lord leads.